When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Unplayable Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to review Pakistan's unbelievable Champions Trophy triumph, analyze Australia's 13-man test squad that's been selected to tour Bangladesh and preview the Women's World Cup. Sam Ferris here, and joining me today is somebody who is quickly becoming a regular member on this show, former News Limited Chief Cricket Writer and occasional cyclist, Mr. Malcolm Conn. Welcome, Mal. Thank you, mate. I'm delighted to be back despite uh, my appalling tipping. That's all right. Let's see if we got it right. No one would tune into the games. That's true. And here, to add some credibility and some actual international playing experience, is former Australia captain Lisa Stalaker. Lisa, thank you for answering this SOS in this time of need. Yes, no worries. It was late notice, Sam, but I am pleased to be here. It was a week ago. It's not too late. That's late in my book. Is it? Oh, sorry. I realise you've got a very busy schedule. You're heading to England when? Saturday night. So looking forward to hopefully some warm weather in England and some quality cricket by the Australian girls. Excellent. Well, let's start in the UK with Pakistan's crushing 180-run win over their arch-rivals India in the final of the Champions Trophy at the Oval. Now, let's be honest, did anybody see this happening before the tournament or even before the final? No, I didn't actually. Uh, seeing the, as India performed so well previously against Pakistan, um, I didn't think we'd see two subcontinent teams in the final as it was, uh, you would think that uh, an England or South Africa or an Australian side would have coped with the conditions better, but just shows that the Asian players are getting used to the English conditions and, and performing well. But uh, credit to Pakistan, they came out and talk about their A game. They brought it in the final. You couldn't have asked for a better performance in the big one, could you, Mal? Well, remarkable, that's right. I, I always thought that... Uh, India could chase down just about anything that Pakistan um, put up, and I thought, looking at Pakistan's batting lineup, that there would be no chance of making a score that would trouble India. I yep. would have thought that 300 might have been about par, and India would have run it down quite comfortably, but uh, not the case at all. No, well, I mean, I actually thought that Pakistan had to win the toss and bowl first. They didn't want India to be chasing to give themselves any chance, but as it turns out, that didn't matter at all because their openers. Azhar Ali and Fuck Azaman, but be careful how we say that one. Uh, they cruised to a centre opening stand. They put on 338 from their 50 overs. Zaman, he made 114. He was man of the match. Um, this guy only made his debut three games before that after Indy thrashed him in the opening game. And now he's the final of the tournament. Uh, remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. And you're right. I mean, the only form we had to go on was the, uh, the previous uh, game against India uh, when they were terrible and he was unknown. And uh, for him to do that is extraordinary. Lisa, is that something that you've got to be wary of? I mean, they probably wouldn't have seen too much of, of Zaman, but jeez, uh, he made him pay. I think the exciting thing about especially um, Pakistan, even like Afghanistan as well, is they've actually got so many talented cricketers in their country playing. It's about somehow they're, they're finding their way into the, the top side and we see it often that they normally perform really well at the start because they are the unknown. No one knows how they play. Um, they might play a little bit different depending on where they, they played all of their cricket in the villages or um, in the backyard or an alleyway, wherever it might have been. So it makes them quite unique. But the fact that they can just 
come onto the world stage and perform like that just shows their mental capacity as well. Vera Coley said after the match that he probably did everything he could as captain, but 80% of Zaman's shots were wrist shots, so he thought that he was a chance almost every delivery, but he just played too good. Unbelievable, really. India's bowlers, though, they got battered around except for Bhuvaneshwar Kumar. They're two A spinners, Ravi Ashwin and Ravindra Jadeja, the two best test bowlers in the world, but they got absolutely punished. Um, Ashwin went for none for 70 off 10 overs, and Jadeja none for 67 off his 8 overs. Now, Lisa, you're a very accomplished spin bowler. What happened? Why didn't they perform to their best of their abilities? Yeah, I think especially Jadeja, when he gets hit or when he wants to get through the overs, he goes quicker and quicker and flatter and flatter. And I think um, whilst that works well in the subcontinent because you normally get conditions that suit the spinners, uh, in other places where it's not as spin-friendly, they've got to kind of beat them with flight. And when you're not necessarily tossing the ball up and you're just kind of darting, they almost become a medium-pace bowler with not a lot on it. So they tend to be quite hittable, which was shown in the final. Uh, also, I'm sure um, Mickey Arthur would have said, you know, if we take down India's spinners, then we're a real chance. Yeah. So sometimes that psych- psychological, maybe we need to sit them out and then we'll explode at the back end. Or There, there are tactics that a lot of the teams start to use about taking out their big players because it really hurts the opposition, and, and we saw that uh, that night. And we had talked about before about the spinners coming more into play as pitches wear, but this was a fresh pitch. It was brand yeah. new and it was an absolute belter. So they weren't going to get any help from that. And it was interesting, I thought, when Ashwin started, uh, Coley had a slip in for him and Ashwin was firing them in at uh, middle and leg at about 100 k's an hour. So uh, the captain was thinking one thing and the bowler was obviously too petrified to try and bowl <laughs> to an offside field. Now, one of the Australian favourite sledges during the Qantas Tour of India was that the Indian spin bowlers couldn't play away from home, particularly Jadeja. This performance in the final has uh, probably put a bit of credence to that sledge. Why is that so? I mean, there are two obviously elite spinners, but it's a different format. But is it just so hard to change from conditions when you're a spin bowler? I think that if you've got to look at the tournament and how quick it is, like really they only play three, three games round games and then they qualify into semi so there's not a lot of time for them to kind of get used to the conditions and uh, remember India have just come off playing the IPL so yep. they're thinking T20 this is how this is what's worked well for me for six weeks hang on we're playing 50 over even though it's still white ball cricket there is a there's a there's a change in how you approach it so uh, it looks like they the their spin bowlers weren't able to adapt quick enough mm. Because in India, obviously, natural variation. The pitch can be a bit up and down. The, the ball might hold up a bit, so you can't be confident about hitting through the ball. But uh, there was no natural variation. That pitch was an absolute belter. So the natural advantage they would have had in India just wasn't there. Yeah, fresh pitch and then two new balls as well. So there wasn't much wear and tear on the balls. Uh, set a daunting 339 to win. India started in the worst possible fashion. They, their wins have really been built around their, their top three, in particular the opening partnership. But Mohammad Amir a quick end to that. He trapped Rohit Sharma. It was just the third ball. Then he had Virat Kohli out for five. And then he completed the trifecta when he, with the wicket of Shikha Darwin. Uh, India's three, big three, back in the pavilion before the ninth over had finished. Uh, Mal, that was pretty much curtains then, wasn't it? Well, it was. And it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, Amir only came back in from injury, so he actually didn't play it in some of the earlier games. So uh, yeah. Pakistan had got there without him. So that was sort of a lot of icing on the top of that cake, getting him back. And uh, he showed what a dangerous player he can be. And he probably hadn't performed as well as he as he can show, but Hassan Ali probably taking the spotlight as player of the tournament with 13 or wickets. But geez, he stamped his class in the final against 
um, no better opposition if you're a Pakistan player. Yeah, absolutely. I think his record against some of the top Indian batsmen has been um, really good figures. So he, I think he's picked up Kohli quite a number of times as well. So uh, credit to Pakistan coaching staff for managing their players really well throughout that tournament. And I think the game keeps moving forward in the sense that you select your team based on conditions, your opposition um, form as well. And sometimes form doesn't even play part of it anymore because you've got to be so strategic in, in what you're doing in such a short tournament as well. So uh, the fact that he was able to produce his best when he when he hadn't played the last game just shows that he's he's a high calibre. And certainly we missed him when he wasn't allowed to play and the fact yep. that he's come back and performed really well at international cricket as well in, as in England, um, I think credit to him. We talk about depth, especially in test match cricket, but is it getting to a point now it's so specialised that the whole squad has to be ready to play because, like you said, it's going to be picked on not only the conditions but the opposition and the matchups. And you see it in, in, in the field, though, if there's a left-hander on, they bring the right-arm off-spinner on, but now they're even going back a step further and a bit more macro on picking the whole 11 based around exactly that game not just picking the best 11. It's, it's almost like your money ball type thing that we're yeah. starting to see in cricket and um, you, you talk to some of the T20 coaches, uh, I had a chance over in the IPL and, and the way that they kind of build their their team and their squad and, and they're looking at different figures and looking at different things that we normally as cricket purists look at their stats. Well, these are completely different stats and um, it makes it really interesting because it, it means that everyone has an opportunity and you're right, everyone has to be ready to play because at any moment, um, especially in that, that 15, they should be good enough to play on the day. It's remarkable how the game's changed. And the 1993 tour of England that I covered, the first six weeks of that tour, the only international cricket were three one-league internationals. The rest of it were just warm-up games. Now players have just got to be ready to go regardless all the time. And does that mean that if... Back in those days, uh, and that's only 25 years ago now, but uh, players were more rounded because they had to play all the different conditions. Normally the, 11, the best 11 played regardless of where they were playing. Now it's so specialised that they will bring in a player who's really good against spin bowling or a player who's really effective against a particular batsman. Oh, there, there was always changes for conditions. You always picked the team on the conditions. I think it was interesting on that tour. I don't think it'll ever be done again that Matthew Hayden scored a thousand first-class runs and never played a test match. What an emotional roller coaster it was for Azza Ali. <laughs> he, um, he makes a really measured, very important 59, and he was run out, stranded by uh, by Zaman to end the opening stand of 128. And then he drops Kohli at first slip off Amir. If there's one player in the Indian lineup you can't drop, it's Virat Kohli. <laughs> And then he gets out the next ball, Coley uh, leading edge to point. I mean, talk about a crazy 45 seconds. That, I mean, nobody wants to drop a catch. Apparently it's the worst feeling in cricket, but it was all wiped just uh, about a minute later. Yeah, the, you certainly don't want to be the one that drops the catch, but you are hopeful that uh, they don't make you pay. And Coley certainly didn't take advantage of the, cha the chance that he was given. Um, just shows the, the credibility of where the pace bowlers were bowling and, and the areas that they were bowling. So uh, very lucky for Pakistan that uh, he didn't hurt them. Just, uh, Lisa, put yourself in those big moments you've played in those big tournaments. How much of that is psychological? How much would Coley have really been feeling that? How much was the quality of the bowler? I mean, we know he was a quality bowler. And how much would it have been Coley thinking about the Met situation and the loss of the early wicket and, and having a lot to do? Yeah, credit to the Indian players in general. I think, you know, the weight of their country and the expectation that everyone stops and they watch the game uh, would certainly play mind tricks on them. Um, they've been able to perform really well over 
so many years and so many different pre um, pressure situations. But there's also the other things that go behind the scenes. And, you know, we heard talks of Coley not getting on with Anil Kumble, the coach. So, you know, how much was that playing a role? Uh, and sometimes, especially for him as a captain, he leads a certain way. He gets criticised a lot by the Indian media because of how he plays and his emotions. So... Um, Sometimes those little voices in your head, they, they, uh, the volume is turned up and other times you're able to control that and turn it down. Uh, so only he can answer the question whether, you know, things got the better of him that day or w was it just decent bowling. But um, you expect those athletes to be able to switch on and switch off really well and maybe he just didn't do that. Hassan Ali was named player of the tournament for capturing 13 wickets at 15 in the 2016 Pakistan Super League. Hassan was called a goat by a journalist at a press conference for being an amateur. The uh, media manager stopped the press conference right then and there and, and pulled the player out, as he should have. Now he's one of the best ODI bowlers in the world right now. Uh, Mal, I've got two questions for you. One, have you ever called a player a goat? And two, how dramatic has Hassan's rise been and how important was he for Pakistan to win that tournament? Well, I think it depends how you interpret goat because <laughs> all of the Australian players call Gary Lyon goat, but I think they mean the greatest of all time. I'm That's not right. sure that that press conference in Pakistan may have had the same uh, connotations, but uh, he's been fantastic, hasn't he, Hassan Ali? Uh, I think it was, what, one for 70 or something in that first game? Yep. And then uh, the next four games, he's got three wickets in each game. So to rack up 13 wickets in five games in one-day cricket is a really good performance. And you can see with his ability to be able to reverse swing and trouble the left-handers in particular, he's taken some really important wickets at big times. Bowlers so important in tournaments, right, Lisa? I mean, they, I mean, you can have all the batsmen in the world, as India have proven, but if you have a quality bowling attack... You can defend anything and put yourself right in the position to win the title. Absolutely. They say uh, you've got to take your wickets. Uh, even though, you know, you move away from test cricket where you've got to take 20 wickets. One day cricket, if you pick up wickets, it slows the run rate down, puts pressure on the new bat batsman. So, um, yeah, wickets are certainly important. And you need someone. And it doesn't matter who they are, you know, what they bowl. There'll be certain players that are just wicket takers. Four years ago, it was probably right around this time, Mel, uh, that... Uh, Mickey Arthur, he was axed as Australian coach on the eve of the 2013 Ashes uh, on Sunday. He was in London and he was the winning Champions Trophy coach. What a turnaround it's been for him. An incredible ride that's seen him go from South Africa to Australia. Now Pakistan is in the UAE a lot. Just to comment on what he's been through and what a good, what a good story that is that he's come out and um, had some success. And I'm really pleased for him because I know him personally and he's one of the really good guys in world cricket. He's a, That smile on his face is real. He's an effervescent fella. He's a very glass-half-full sort of a bloke. So I'm really pleased for him personally and I just sort of feel that um, it's been proven now that uh, both with South Africa and with Pakistan that he certainly, ha in the right circumstances, has the credentials to coach a team. So I guess in some situations you'll have to ask uh, how much is the coach and how much responsibility do the players have to take so it's an interesting one it's certainly uh, all credit to him finally where to now for Pakistan the skipper Safraz uh, he wants international cricket to return to Pakistan he wants Pakistan to play at home more currently based out of the UAE what a young side they've got so much potential as pretty much every Pakistan side has over the years what's the future hold for them Lise? Well, the Pakistan Super League final was played in Lahore um, and it was a packed out crowd and some of the international players went and played there. Now, obviously, security was was at its extreme. Yep. Um, so I think Pakistan still need to go through ICC and 
uh, ensure that the security measures are put in place. Obviously, the for them to win this tournament, the fact that they haven't played cricket at home for a long time yeah, and playing abroad all the time, you credit to the players. But uh, you'd like to think that there's, a, there's some light at the end of the tunnel, but I'm just not sure yet. Can you see it happening, Mel? Uh, no, I can't, unfortunately, because as much as we'd love to see it, the, obviously the bigger issue is security, and that's a, a nationwide issue for Pakistan and for that region in its entirety. So as much as oh, I went to the, on the 98 tour of Pakistan and really enjoyed it, and uh, it's a shame that people don't have the opportunity to tour Pakistan, but at the moment I just think it's unrealistic. All right, that's our Champions Trophy wrap. Let's return our focus to Australia and the test squad that's been named to face Bangladesh. Last Friday, Cricket Australia announced a 13-man squad to face Bangladesh in two tests in August and September. The squad reads Steve Smith as captain, David Warner, his deputy, Ashton Agar, Hilton Cartwright, Pat Cummins, Peter Hanscom, Josh Hazelwood, Usman Khawaja, Nathan Lyon, Glenn Maxwell, James Pattinson, Matthew Renshaw and the wicketkeeper Matthew Wade. Now, the big talking points from this announcement include the absence of strike bowler Mitchell Stark through injury, the mission of Stephen O'Keefe and Sean Marsh, the inclusion of rounder Hilton Cartwright and the elevation of Ashton Agar as the number two spinner in the country. Let's begin with Stark, whose broken foot hasn't quite healed, as well as the CO Medicos would have liked. So he's going to miss the tour and rest up, hopefully be back for those one days against India later in September. Uh, Lisa, tell us how much of an absence will Stark have on this Test 11? Well, I think he's the X factor within the Australian side. The fact that you know he regularly picks up wickets early or if not late, um, picks up the tail really quickly and cheaply. Um, they'll they'll certainly miss him, but I think this is it will certainly be a hard tour. Bangladesh is so strong at home. Uh, yep. I, I I think they're a winning straight streak, aren't they? Of like maybe ten matches or something well, like they that. They beat England in their last start at home. Yeah, so the, 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 those conditions they play really well. So I think um, it will certainly be a test for everyone else. But it's a good opportunity for some other younger bowlers or bowlers still on the fringe to get some time out in the middle. Now I was fortunate enough to be in India, and I know that when Stark went down after that second test. Nathan Lyon struggled in the third test. I suppose every bowler did. I think Steve O'Keefe bowled nearly 80 overs in one innings by himself. But Lyon didn't have the foot marks that Stark creates being the left armour over the wicket. Both Ashwin and Lyon didn't have a great game. Is that going to be a byproduct? Is that something that Lyon's going to have to deal with because they don't pick another left arm bowler? He's not going to have that rough to bowl with? Well, that's just uh, reality, unfortunately, isn't it? Unless you want to make your right armers bowl around the wicket from time to time and, <laughs> and do the job for you. Uh, I mean, the Bangladeshi pitches will provide natural variation, so there will be um, some assistance for the spinners there anyway, but I th that's going to be a very tough tour for Australia. I mean, yeah. no one should underestimate how hard that's going to be. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, in his place, in Stark's place, is James Pattinson. It's exciting to see him back in the test fold. He's just as fast as Stark and Cummins and... I reckon he's one of those bowlers who's always at the batsman, always trying to take wickets. He's not that guy that you want to go and bowl five tight overs. He's the breakthrough man. What do you reckon he's going to add, Mal? He didn't want to play in the India tour because he's worried about uh, his fitness. He thought he'd come back a couple of times too soon and broken down, but he's had half a shield season. He's had some county games. Didn't play in the Champions Trophy, but trained well there. We might see him at his best. We might. It'll be interesting to uh, find out if we do see him, in fact. I mean, the great thing about having him there is that the, pa the pace attack's always going to have some grunt, that with Hazelwood, Cummins and Pattinson, probably only two of them are going to play in those conditions. You'd think that Cartwright, with his medium pace, may fill in as the third seamer and they'll play the two spinners and that Cartwright sort of um, all-round abilities might take a bit of pressure off the two quicks and it may be that 
um, given the test matches will be fairly close together, that, that one of your quicks does have to be spelled if one of them bowls a lot of overs and, and Pattinson comes in. It may be that uh, he doesn't get a run, but at least there's extra grunt there if uh, Australia needs it. And isn't it funny that all throughout the Champions Trophy we're talking about the big four, let's get the big four on the park, and one tournament through, one of them's already gone down. So it just shows that you need to have that, that pace battery because uh, as much as we want to get them all in the park at the same time, it's very rarely that it happens. Yeah, it is. Uh, I just think with the amount of cricket that they all play, the schedule, um, there's not a lot of downtime for them. They're still all young guys as well, so their body is slowly coming to an end of whatever the growing spurts they've had and just dealing with the amount of pressure that they've already put under their body. So... The great thing is that Cricket Australia has got a lot of young bowlers coming through, uh, young quality fast bowlers. It's just trying to time all their injuries so it works out nicely so they all get a go. That's right. Speaking of quality young bowlers, uh, the national section panel said that they are going to include, or they could include, uh, another player to replace Stark to make it a 14-man squad and they're going to name that after the Australia A Tour of South Africa. The fast bowlers over there will be Chad Sayers, Jackson Bird, Chris Tremaine, and Jason Berendorf, if they do replace him, who's the front runner there? Well, Bird's the safe bet, isn't he? Because he's done it before, he's going to bowl straight, but whether he's going to get anything out of those conditions, who knows? I mean, Berendorf um, had a terrific finish to the season, yep. um, been a quality player, been around for a while, and he's that left armour that might do Nathan Lyon a favour. So there you go. You never know. Who are you picking, Lise? Yeah, I think Berendorf. Really? Uh, I think you've got to go for something different. Left armour, he's had some success, needs an opportunity. Um, we know what Bird can do. We've seen Chris Tremaine, not at a test level, um, and Chad Sayers. I, I don't know if they're up for international standard yet, especially in a test arena. Mm. Uh, Noah Keefe in this squad, a bit was made about that on Friday. He's had a couple of issues since he came back from India. The NSP pointed out that he didn't have a great back end of that tour. He took 12 wickets in the first test, then seven in the rest. He's 32 male. He's got a pretty rich injury history. Was that the last time we've seen him wear the baggy green in India? I wouldn't be writing people off too early. I did a, a bit of a quick analysis uh, on players, uh, spinners who had played for Australia after the age of 32, and there's quite a few. He's he's 32 and 190 days, and uh, he's taken in played five tests, and I think taken 23 wickets in those five tests. And there's 15 players who played for Australia uh, as spinners after the age of 32 have taken 23 wickets or more. So I actually think that 32 years old could be seen as the prime for a spinner. So I, I would have thought that, uh, depending on how Ashton Agar goes, that uh, that Sock could be looking at a Sydney test, depending on on the young bloke and whether he performs or he doesn't perform. It's a, He's played a lot of shield cricket now, but he's still only 23 years old. He does look a good cricketer. His figures yeah. suggest otherwise. His figures suggest he's a modest player, but at 23, you've got a lot of upside in front of you. So big opportunity for him. It'll be interesting to see how he goes. get the feeling with Agar, they like him as an all-round package, don't they? He's got a couple of shield centuries. He feels very well and he's very handy with the ball as well. Maybe they're thinking about, like they did in India, that he might be the spinning all-rounder if they do play three quicks. And then I was going to say, and then age can also go to his advantage as well. He's 23. Do we kind of mould him and, and get him amongst the group? He's been in and out of the test squad as your 13th for a number of years now because they just like the look of him. They want to get him around the group. So he they might be kind of priming him to take over a Nathan Lyons spot down the future and this is a great opportunity to get him in amongst the, the test squad and see how he copes, especially in uh, Bangladesh conditions as well. Yeah, no, no Swepson. He was a, a project player, I guess, over in India, as they said. But a leg spinner... 
think Australia really want to see another leg spin. I know the coach definitely wants to. I was surprised he didn't get a look in. Yeah, maybe they think that the conditions might be a bit slow and low for him and that um, they want to be able to control the game with finger spinners and maybe back here in Australia where there's a bit more bounce and a bit more zip that, that he might make more of an impact. Um, but there are a couple of uh, exciting young spinners on the horizon, so it would be good to see him get an opportunity at some stage. No Sean Marsh in this squad either. He'll be 34 next month. He managed just that one half century in eight innings in India. He's a supremely talented player, Mal. Um, but his test match career at only 23 games, is it looking like it might be curtains for that one? He's a, a, an accomplished player, but injuries and form just seem to strike at the wrong time. We've spent 10 years wondering or not whether he can play at international level, and we're still not sure. His, mm. his last uh, uh, series in India, he averaged 18 at a time when they really needed him to stand up. And he has played some important innings at important times, but he's also gone missing when it's mattered. So I think that at 34, and particularly with his, in his injury history at well, it is time. At least you're thinking, you're nodding there, you're thinking the same you thing. You know, Mal makes all, all the right points. I think the frustrating thing, he actually looks really good overseas. Um, he looks a real nervous cricketer here in Australia conditions. Uh, maybe it's the local crowd. I, I don't know. He wants to perform well. But um, you're right. He hasn't stepped up when we needed him to. And at age 34, um, the experience he has at first class level, we needed him to put his hand up in certain times and he just hasn't done that enough. At the other end of the spectrum is Hilton Cartwright. He returns to the test squad after missing India. Now, what must be going through the heads of these all-rounders in Australia at the moment? Uh, if we wind back to the start of last summer, Mitchell Marsh was the number one all-rounder. Uh, after Hobart, Australia ditched the all-rounder and went for six specialist batsmen. Then they needed an all-rounder at the SCG, and so they picked Cartwright. They blooded him for his debut. Then Marsh was picked ahead of Cartwright for in the India tour, and when Marsh was ruled out, they went for Victoria's Marcus Stoinis as Marsh's replacement and now uh, another test tour Marsh and Stoinis aren't there Marsh is injured but uh, Cartwright's back in the fold it's very hard to keep up I'm a bit confused just reading all that what, I mean, what, what, where's your head Lisa if you're one of these Australian all-rounders what's going through I mean it, hopefully the communication with the selectors is good because mm. if not you sort of don't know where you stand yeah look I, I feel sorry for them um, they were I'm sure all of them would be wanted would want to have an opportunity to kind of cement their spot or give it be given a, an opportunity for a number of tests to kind of show their claim, whereas Hilton Cartwright didn't necessarily get that chance. Um, yeah, they're chopping and changing and they're going on different formats. You know, Stoinis came in after performing well in the one-day side against New Zealand, then he went to New Zealand. So um, whilst we understand a lot of these players can cross over, it'd be nice to see the selectors go, OK, this is our best 11 or this is our number one all-rounder and we're going to give them the Australian summer to figure it out because they're all still young cricketers. So they've got to be given that chance if you're going to go with such a young player. I mean, Mitchell Marsh seemed to have that opportunity, didn't he? He played that, those first couple of games against South Africa in the summer. Then he had two games against India and played quite well over there. Um, the scores weren't massive, but they were important knocks and a couple of wickets. Uh, is it Cartwright's turn? Well, yes, it is. But it's interesting that if you look at Cartwright's figures, he's the, the second highest scoring batsman in the Sheffield Shield last season after the ageless Eddie Cowan. So <laughs> uh, he deserves his opportunity as a batsman. And I think he's one of those guys you pick as a top six batter and his bowling's a bonus, a, a bit of the, the Steve Waugh type rather than a genuine all-rounder. I think that we had a stage there with Mitchell Marsh where his bowling was actually quite good and quite sharp and he was sort of propping the bowling attack up a bit but leaving the, the batting wafer thin. I think Mitch has got some work to do on his batting, clearly. Um, 
he's a very talented striker of the ball and I think he's more suited to the white ball game but um, he looks to be very sort of heavy footed in the way he moves at uh, at test level lacks the finesse I suppose you'd say of a test player so I think he's an enormous talent he's just got to do a bit more and I think Hilton Cartwright deserves an extended run because he's going to find it very tough in Bangladesh he's coming out of Perth where the ball hasn't turned for 150 years (laughs) so it's going to be foreign conditions for him and he's going to have to work very hard and even if he has a modest tour I think he he should be able to give it be given the opportunity to to cement that number six spot when we did see him he looked good Mm. like he looked quite compact he looked calm at, at the crease as well. A bit like um, Peter Hanscom when he came in. He, he, yeah. he just looked like he belonged there. So I think Hilton Cartwright doesn't look that kind of mould yet, but I think he's certainly got the make. I think I agree with you in the sense that his batting is a bit more fluent. Um, so, yeah, and his numbers have shown that. I mean, he might even get a game if Glenn Maxwell retains that number six spot. He performed very well in India, but as this... Tour. I mean, they've got to win this tour. They've got to win these two test matches. But they're even looking further ahead to the Ashes and saying, is Glenn Maxwell a number six? Is there a spin bowling all-rounder at number six? The way to go in Australia? Well, they've got some decisions to make in terms of the balance of their side in Bangladesh. Because if Cartwright doesn't play, then they're going to find it very difficult with just two front-line fast bowlers and an inexperienced spinner. And then Maxwell, who Steve Smith doesn't seem to have any confidence in as far as his bowling is concerned. So mm. I can't see them playing in uh, Bangladesh using Maxwell as a frontline bowler or even as a genuine all-rounder. He, he will have to play as a batter and they'll have to find a place for Cartwright as an all-rounder. So does that mean Sean Marsh comes out, everyone moves up a spot and then Cartwright at six, so Maxwell bats at five? Well, Cartwright can bat at five or six, it doesn't matter. I just think he needs to be in that side for balance. Is that why you're thinking it, Lisa, or... Kawaja gets a look. He was the man. Oh, on the, he, was the, love. he was a water the, boy. Yeah, <laughs> I felt sorry for him. I, I caught up with him a couple of times um, in India. I said, do you remember how to bat? He goes, no, I'm really good at drinks. But uh, um, I feel sorry for him. I, I mean, I saw him in South Africa as well when he toured with the one-day side. Didn't get an opportunity there. We lost that series 5-0. So I, I, I don't understand the selector's mentality of not giving him an opportunity. He, when he has played, he's performed fairly well. The problem is when you keep chopping and changing these players, their confidence gets dented. Uh, they've got to understand that that's, they've played a role in that. So they've got to show a bit more faith in the players and give them the confidence they need because when they have had that confidence, like Usman Kawaja, he's performed so well for Australia. Yeah. All right, Lisa, don't go anywhere because okay. you're up next. You're going to look into your crystal ball as we preview the Women's World Cup. All right, time to preview the Women's World Cup. Uh, where Most Australia, important part, right? That's the right. Show, Save yeah. the best till last, where Australia will be aiming to win a seventh title. Lisa Slaker, you were part of two of those victories. Uh, first off, is the Women's World Cup sort of the ultimate for Australian women's cricket or women's cricket worldwide? Yeah, it certainly is. It's, it's your opportunity to, to test yourself against the best in the world in the same conditions in a couple of weeks' time. You know, So the fact that... Uh, they only come four years, every four years. It means that it, it becomes such a special group of players. And uh, recently, Cricket Australia invited um, the six winning teams. And uh, we went up to Brisbane 
uh, to Bon Voyage, uh, the current Australian team, and it was amazing to see the, the players there. And a lot of us were talking amongst ourselves, oh, why wasn't such and such here? And we're like, oh, that's right. They were never part of a winning World Cup side. So as as high calibre of some players are, they weren't part of a winning World Cup. So to be part of one and then hopefully for the Australian women's cricket team to win their seventh, um, it will be a special moment for them. And what are some of your memories from those two World Cup victories? I'm sure the celebrations would have been good. Yeah, the celebrations were great. But remember what happens on tour stays on tour. Sure. Uh, the first one was 2005 in South Africa. We all stayed in a high-performance um, centre in uh, Johannesburg. Oh, sorry, Pretoria. And all teams were there. And so we were all kind of bunking in, eating, same places, all that type of thing. But to play in my first World Cup with Belinda Clark, Catherine Fitzpatrick, Karen Rolton, Lisa Kitely, you know, the, the stars that I watched when I was younger was a special moment. And, and then obviously 2013 we played in India um, – and we travelled around. We went to Katuk to play our pool round games. Um, wasn't the best place to, to tour, uh, <laughs> but it was certainly reminded me of the old India when, when you tour, and I'm sure Mal has plenty of stories about that. Um, but then to, to play in Mumbai and, and win the trophy um, there was great. And for me to kind of be part of so many different generations um, and be part of the first, you know, my first one with the stars of the game I thought and then to kind of be the older has been and then <laughs> see the younger generation um, you know is certainly special. Okay just like the Champions Trophy the top eight teams will compete uh, in this Women's World Cup but unlike the Champions Trophy there's only going to be one pool with everybody playing each other once. Top four go through to play the semis and then there's a final at Lords on July 23. Mal is that a good way to set it up? The World Cup's normally I suppose for the men's competition because there are more well-developed teams that they try and spread out a little bit more but this way top eight teams and we get to see everyone play each other once which is a good thing because I would have liked to have seen in the Champions Trophy Australia take on India and Pakistan and South Africa and see how they would have gone against them. I think this is great eight teams it's an elite competition everyone does play each other so you play a lot of cricket um, and one of the most important things about that is because you're playing so many games, it means that, that over that, that extended run, the quality should rise to the surface and ensure that the best teams go through. Unlike the Champions Trophy, which is hit or miss, we saw Australia have two wet games, yep. probably got out of that square, had a bad game against England, and it's all over. But at least here, if you have a trip early, the quality can, uh, can come to the surface and you've you, you got the opportunity to really press on and make a semi-final spot. So I love that format. The last two World Cups were pool and super sixes stage and then the top two went through to the final so they've gone back to to what it was in 2005 and i think a world cup event you want your semi-finals you want you want to yeah. you know you want to give your, your other teams a chance it's not just the top two out of the the last six or whatever it may be so and the fact that you play everyone it means you actually judge yourself against every team are we good enough have we beaten every side Australia, the number of 15 players squad with a host of familiar names and a few bolters. Every squad has to have a bolter. And this squad reads Sarah Ailey, Kristen Beams, Alex Blackwell, Nicole Bolton, Ash Gardner, Rachel Haynes, Alyssa Healy, Jess Jonathan, Meg Lanning, Beth Mooney, Elise Perry, Megan Schutt, Blenda Vakarira. Did I say that right, Lisa? Yeah, Vakarira. Vakarira. Elise Villani and Amanda Jade Wellington. Uh, your first thoughts on the squad, Lise? I think it's a balanced squad. Uh, obviously, you've got a good core group of players that have been part of the Australian side during this ICC Women's Championship, which has been going on for the last three years where they play the top 
eight teams and um, points go towards qualifying for the Women's World Cup. And then you've got some of the youngsters, um, uh, Belinda Fuckwera is playing her first, could um, play her first game for Australia. Amanda Jade Wellington, a young leg spinner from Adelaide, um, a huge talent. Uh, will she be used over there? I'm not quite sure. And then some older players. Uh, Sarah Ailey could be one of the oldest players to make her debut for Australia. I think credit to her, you know, eight, 12 months ago she was thinking about retiring from one-day cricket. Um, she stuck at it and she's about to play her World Cup. She actually came to India in 2013 um, because there was only a couple of people I told I was going to retire and she was one of them. And so she made the trip and... Now I get to go watch her play in her first World Cup, so it's going to be hopefully surreal to see her out there. Uh, and Ash Gardner, young Sydney Sixers cricket New South Wales player. So there's some certainly some exciting talent there, but you'd expect the calibre of Lanning, Perry, Megan Schutt to kind of rise above. Mel, you've covered a lot of World Cups. Is that the kind of balance you need? You need to go with youth, experience, have, um, I guess, experience players will been there and done it they know what it's all about but sometimes the, the naive nature of young players they don't really know what they're getting themselves into they can just play with a bit of freedom well that is true I, I do like the the look of that squad um, there are a terrific uh, number of spinning options and uh, spinning all rounders um, which uh, Lisa would know are particularly important aren't they Lisa <laughs> uh, I'm also pleased for Rachel Haynes who did lose her place um, in the women's team and um, she's one of the more experienced players going around and you might have thought that it had passed her by but she stuck at it and uh, she's, she's got her sh- uh, place back so I think that's terrific. Well she was the leading run scorer in 2013 in the World Cup for Australia so um, I remember sending a message to Matthew Mott, the Australian coach, who's a selector. I said, good selection, about time. He goes, yeah, thanks. So um, <laughs> hopefully we'll see plenty of her out there because she's had a lot of success over in England uh, she, when she made... Her test debut, I think she scored 90-odd. So she likes those conditions. She is calm under pressure, which is what you need out there in a World Cup campaign and has been around the blocks a few times. It's pretty jam-packed top six if you go with Valani, Bolton, Perry, Lanning, Blackwell... Jonathan, I mean, is that the top? Healy, yeah. And Healy is... So, yeah, obviously you, you, you would think that um, Rachel Haynes might struggle to get in, um, Beth Mooney, so their opening positions, they might change uh, there because it looks like Elise Villani will come into a number four position. They seem to like that. Okay. One thing that the Australian team has spoken a lot about is their back end. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, I've heard it over the last week, every every interview the player is talking about, well, we've got to get our back end of our batting innings right. So it certainly puts a lot of pressure on on that five, six, seven. Um, the likes of Healy there, Blackwell, they really need to step up um, because they're, I think the Australian team is searching for a consistent 300. The team will be led by Meg Lanning, who has to be the best batter on the planet. Mal, Lanning has 10 centuries in just 57 matches and that's already the world record and she's only 25. Remarkable, isn't it? I mean, the one thing that uh, that sport does show you, particularly cricket, does show you that numbers don't lie. And yep. in this case, it just it's just a head and shoulders, isn't it? I mean, you get figures like that, and you start talking about sort of the the Bradman of women's cricket, don't you? In yeah. terms of hundreds per inning. So, um, yeah, the, the interesting thing I'll I'll uh, be, be interested to see with her in terms of if some of the matches are close with her captaincy. Okay. Um, because. I think she's she's a clearly an outstanding batter, 
Um, but she's probably a bit more of a reserve person and at times probably can be a bit more of a reserve captain. So it'll be interesting to see if she has to roll the dice sometimes and, and play a bit more attacking rather than a holding role, how she goes in that regard. Lisa, when Meg came onto the scene, did you think she was going to be the superstar she is today? Yeah, I certainly thought <laughs> she had a lot of skill. I actually um, played a game of club cricket and she filled in for... She was playing uh, in our Brewer Shield for Gordon and she came up to first grade. I think she was aged about 13. She batted at 11. Julie Hayes bowled her out early, but I thought this kid has got some talent. Like She was able to move well in the field, understood the game well, and unfortunately New South Wales lost her to, to Victoria because of her father's work, but she's certainly gone on to some great things. And um, while she, I agree with you, Mal, she's a wonderful um, batsman in, in her ability to to change the game she can change the game she has the ability to flick the switch on but sometimes she doesn't know when to to put uh, to flick the switch and and we saw also in the world t20 final against west indies the australian team needed a different attack uh, try something different they were just doing the same things to the west indian side so i'd like to think that um both uh, meg and alex blackwell and the coach the, the support team have learnt their those kind of lessons over the last few years and make sure that they've put things in place so that we keep adjusting and, and changing as the game keeps uh, adjusting itself. Yeah, another senior member of the squad is Elise Perry, undoubtedly key for the Aussies. She was player of the series in the 2015 Ashes in the UK. Um, Elise started out primarily as a bowler, but now she's really formed herself into that dual threat, a genuine all-rounder. Uh, Lisa, where do you see her game right now? Is she more a batting all-rounder than she was a bowling all-rounder or are they both skills sort of on par? Well, when she was coming up through the ranks of Cricket New South Wales, she was always seen as a genuine all-rounder. Problem was when she was in, uh, I think, the under-15 stateside, she was about 13. So she was really small. She didn't have the strength. She had the technique because her father obviously has spent a lot of time with her in the nets. Mm. Um, she's got a wonderful batting technique, but she didn't have the power to get it off the square. So he said, run fast. Your job is just to <laughs> run well between wickets and stay out there. Um, ever since... Uh, she's had the opportunity to, to bat up the order. She's produced exactly what everyone has thought that she could do. So um, she puts in so much work. You know, the fact that she, for a long period of time, was juggling soccer and cricket. Um, the amount of hours I used to see her in the Cricket New South Wales nets with her father throwing the ball. I'm amazed he hasn't had a shoulder operation. <laughs> um, but I think at the moment her batting is certainly stronger than her bowling. Um, and... It's hard being an all-rounder, trying to juggle everything, trying to get that time in for your different skill set. Uh, and I think she's probably at that stage where she's trying to figure out what's the best thing for her preparation from a batting perspective, fielding perspective, and also bowling. And I'd like to think in the English conditions, we start to see the best of her again. Certainly, I think with her batting, batting at... Uh, like, she bats at three, you just don't get her out. Like, she can just bat through the innings, get yeah. 100, and the team can bat around her. So it does give people like Meg Lanning the freedom to actually put the foot down if they're going all right. And she's certainly got the power now. What's one of those warm-up games on cricket.com.au? And uh, she smashed one straight out of Southampton. It was a huge shot, so she's got all the power now. What about these bolters? Lisa... Blinda Fakawira nailed it. Uh, tell us about her. Young gun, came from left field. Let's hear her story. Yeah, her story uh, is an interesting one. Um, uh, Fiji in background. Uh, plays a lot of, or I think she still plays a lot of netball. Very talented netball player. Um, 
very shy person uh, in in our team meetings in underage. She used to fall asleep um, and we used <laughs> to wake her up and go, Belinda, you got anything to say? And she'd just kind of giggle her way through it. So she keeps to herself. Uh, the girls have been telling me that they're slowly kind of getting a bit of her personality out. But she's got to be one of the most athletic players I've seen for her height, um, her ability around the field. She can field anywhere. Um, we put her in slips, takes some sensational catches and just as good around the boundary as well. So her athletic ability w will make it really difficult for the Australian selectors. And the fact that she bowls quick, she's raw, um, uh, I think will provide that X factor. We saw that and we used the same type of thing with Holly Furling in 2013. She came in for a couple of games and had that impact because she bowled quick. No one had really seen her. So um, it's a bit different now because of the WBBL. A few of the international players now know an, a number of our younger players and can pass on the messages to their teammates. But um, she's certainly a good find. Uh, will she play a lot of the games there? I'm not sure. I'd like to think maybe Sarah Ailey would go in in front of her, just I think for the experience. And we saw in the, the practice match against New Zealand, I think Belinda went for about nine runs per over. So it's it's, it's going to be daunting, as I said to you before we even got on. It. As a young player coming into a World Cup campaign and that being your first game, yeah. poor, that's a big call for a young player. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? If you look at that squad... Players like, uh, for instance, Perry and Gardner, genuine batters who are genuine all-rounders, there is room for that extra bowler. So whether it's uh, Ailey or whether it's Vakaria with a bit of grunt, you don't have to get 10 overs out of them. You could get five or six and they might be able to do a bit of a job for you. Yeah. And just on Ailey, uh, very close with her, um, she's, like you said, it might be one of the uh, more uh, senior debutantes <laughs> in Australian women's cricket um, yeah i'm going to keep reminding her when she finally gets that cap but it just shows that uh even at 32 your international yeah. career and hopes are not done it's it's really uh pleasing to see that the australian selectors have acknowledged the success that she's had over a long period of time you know i think i tweeted something that she's got to be the, one of the most loved domestic players in the competition uh -huh. so for her to get that acknowledgement to be se selected is a big thing um yeah, because there, there there have been times in the men's game um, and also we, we felt it recently in the women's game, it was all about youth. Let's get the next best kid into the system as soon as possible and get them through and get them ready. But you know what? There's some pretty good cricketers out there that are, that are over the age of 26 that can um, do just as good a job. For Australia to win title number seven, back-to-back, -back, what's the one thing they have to absolutely nail, Lisa? They've got to nail their batting. I think if they can blow teams off the park with scoring something close to 300 every time. I think that will allow their bowlers, which I think is a little bit weaker than their batting, a chance just to get into the tournament. I still think the spin department will play a huge role. I wouldn't be surprised to see them pick up large amount of wickets despite it being English conditions. Um, some of the girls have been reporting that there's still something in the wicket for the spinners, especially the, the wickets that they've been training on. So whether that will transfer into the actual games um we'll have to wait and see but i think they're batting they've got to nail and mal your uh, rich history of world cups we talk about bowling winning tournaments but if they put enough runs in the park i mean it doesn't matter how good your <laughs> the bowlers are they can't get them well that's right and lisa's spot on the, the australia can be a very dangerous batting side and can bat quite deep with those all around us so you really just have to put the pressure on the other teams 
the other teams have got some good players in it but don't have a lot of depth in, in most cases. So if you can put pressure on them and get one or two of their good players to play big shots early, take risks and get them out, then you're well on top. Galaxy of stars in this tournament, but I need you guys to name one player that you're really excited to watch. I think Sarah Taylor from England has the potential to take this away from from any opposition. Um, she hasn't played international cricket for a while, has, has probably had the last 12 months out of the game. So that's one player I'll be very interested to see. And I hope she does really well. Not too well. Uh, West Indies can be a wild card. Uh, yep. with uh, Stefani Taylor and Dotton. I love yeah. watching Dotton back when she goes, she really goes. So if you get the West Indies when they're having a good day, it can be a real problem. Finally, a prediction. I assume that we're, both, we're all going to pick Australia to win it, but who are they going to meet in the final? I'd like to see New Zealand. I think they've got the experience. I think they've got the depth better than the rest of the teams. Um, it's just unfortunately they have... This uh, choking mentality when it comes to World Cups, unfortunately. Really? They're the so South Africa of the Women's World Cup. So right. I hope they're able to turn it around because uh, they've been a side that have been very close for a number of years. Right. Amelia, are you going to go to the Windies or are you going to go with the Black? No, I'm well, actually not having said uh, they're the most exciting. They're also one of the most unpredictable. So <laughs> they're the Pakistan. <laughs> so I'm going to go very conservative here and say England. I think England and home are going to be pretty competitive, so it wouldn't surprise me to see Australia play them in the final. That's it for today's episode. Big thanks to Malcolm Conn and Lisa Stalake. Lisa, we'll be hearing you and seeing you commentate throughout the World Cup. What's your first game? Don't be too hard. Um, <laughs> I actually don't know. I'm the 28th. I haven't looked at who's playing. Well, best of luck, Lisa. Appreciate you coming on before you fly out for all your news, scores and video on the Women's World Cup and everything else that's happening in the cricket world at thecricket.com.au. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.